Greetings, friends and colleagues. Welcome to the Thoughtful Teacher Podcast, a service of OnCourse Education Solutions. I am Scott Lee. I hope you are safe and well. In this episode, we welcome back Jennifer Knowles. We first spoke to Jennifer during the first season discussing mindfulness in schools, and today we go deeper, focusing on mindfulness in environments with students who have experienced trauma. Jennifer is the founding consultant at Mind Matters LLC, and she is also a rollout representative for the Contentment Foundation. She has been a literacy coach and an elementary teacher in Tennessee, Georgia, and Zimbabwe. Our conversation was recorded live and outside to maintain safety. It was also raining, so you may hear raindrops occasionally in the background. We're here today with Jennifer Knowles. We're having a live conversation in person. Of course, we're doing it safely. We are outside. And what a beautiful day to be talking about mindfulness. We're outside on a screened-in porch with the rain in the background. So welcome back to the Thoughtful Teacher Podcast, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me again. It's been a couple of years uh, since we talked last. It's crazy. <laughs> I know. And I know a couple of things have changed. So first off, tell us about some of the new things that you're doing. Yeah, happy to do that. So I am still doing wellness programming, focusing on teachers for the school district where I live. And we've built on that to start focusing more on lead teachers around this district and as well as leadership. And so it's been fun to start to build capacity of common language and common practices around well-being and mindfulness in the same district where I've been working for the last several years. So that's one piece. The other is that I also now am proud to say that I work for a nonprofit organization called Contentment Foundation. They work internationally and nationally. They have a lovely learning platform that offers youth and adult-centered well-being curricula, and like I said, to schools nationally, internationally. And I am a rollout representative for them, where I support schools in rolling out the curriculum. Okay, so they're just getting started with that project then. Well, they've been around for a while, but the capacity in which they do this work has built. And so, yes, definitely a lot more momentum happening. They're a wonderful organization. They have wonderful resources, wonderful people, and I'm honored to be a part of it. Obviously, one of the big issues since the last time we talked, COVID-19 was just hitting when that episode was released. When we recorded, actually, before COVID-19, we didn't know that that was coming. Uh, what are you hearing from teachers who've taught or used mindfulness um, about changes or what they're finding helpful uh, since COVID-19 started or since the pandemic started? Yes. So, you know, it's funny. I hear a lot more from teachers about how mindfulness has helped them more so than actually their classroom students, classroom culture, and how 
being able to manage emotions, practice self-compassion, being able to recognize how hard the uncertainty was and still is, and how the practices that were offered to them as well as their students have helped stay, keep them grounded in self-compassion, grounded in self-emotional check-ins. So for those who might not have uh, listened to the last episode, just uh, tell us briefly uh, what mindfulness is, particularly in the school context, and, and what it does. You know, for me and my relationship to mindfulness, it's so multifaceted. That's one of the things that I love about mindfulness is that there's so many different ways that you can practice it structurally or in real time. And ultimately at its foundation, it's about practicing and learning how to pay attention to what's happening right here, right now. And being able to learn how to do that with non-judgment and self-kindness and self-compassion. Being open to and comfortable with discomfort as well as being able to really lean into the joys of life. It's interesting that you mentioned discomfort. It reminds me of... Uh, a conversation I was having a couple of weeks ago with somebody about the importance of discomfort in learning. Sometimes learning is not comfortable, and sometimes teachers have to discuss things or do things that may make students uncomfortable. That That is part of what we do, because I've been thinking about that a lot lately. When I was a new teacher, I learned that sometimes students have to be uncomfortable, but nobody ever taught me how to mitigate that after it was done. Mindfulness could be a very useful tool to put in the toolbox because sometimes learning can be uncomfortable. Would you agree with that? 100%. And I think in the evolution of how I offer wellness and mindfulness practices, resources, learning, I offer it now with that being a big piece of my foundation in that we're learning to be comfortable with the uncomfortable. You know, part of mindfulness is about being present, like I said, and learning to be present with all of it. And so understanding that there is a wide range of things that happen in our experiences and really just being able to remind everyone that being present isn't cupcakes and rainbows and learning how to be with that and be kind towards ourselves and others and training the mind to do that when we're uncomfortable. You know, our mind, I love to talk about the brain and introduce systems in the brain and introduce how our brain is actually set up and wired to keep us safe. And so a lot of our reactivity, a lot of our trying to get away from discomfort isn't necessarily something that's a personality thing or something wrong with us. It's just what our brain does to keep us safe. And I think being able to understand that helps bring some more kindness to an openness to the practice because it's not just what you're doing on a personal level. It's just a function of your body and mind. So, or body and brain. And so I think that when we are talking about discomfort being able to understand that our brain just naturally gets away from that and that if we can learn 
a skill set to lean in safely and effectively into discomfort, into emotions wrapped around discomfort, we are more able to be with it and possibly even let it go a little more easily and accept it. I'm thinking about as we're talking, you know, you mentioned the importance of safety and being safe. Uh, Something that I know from my own work with teachers that oftentimes happens um, on the other side, you know, I mentioned being uh, uncomfortable or times when kids may not feel safe. And we're talking more about emotional safety. You know, as you know, the, uh, you know, the brain development research is very clear. The brain reacts very similarly, feels unsafe emotionally, just like it does when it's unsafe physically. The physical reaction may be different, but what's going on in your brain is still, you know, very much a situation of, uh, of danger. The other part of discomfort and feeling unsafe for students is oftentimes, as teachers, we don't intend for something that we do to necessarily be unsafe for a student. I ran into a problem uh, like that just last week working with a group of teachers where a couple of teachers doing an activity that that I did not think uh, would make them that uncomfortable uh, really created not a trauma but a feeling of discomfort. Would you also say that mindfulness uh, practice and in schools can help or in a classroom can help a teacher in that type of situation you know because there's a lot of times when we lose safety that's unintended and as a an educator you're kind of surprised because you didn't expect that to happen mindfulness would be helpful there as well would it not it would and i want to bring out a point that you made about your experience when working with teachers that you were surprised by the um, outcomes of a practice that you invited for them. I want to note that without any sort of trauma-informed training, mindfulness on its own can sometimes trigger trauma as opposed to actually helping soothe or heal from trauma. And so it's really important to have those mindfulness and trauma-informed training or or even trauma awareness, having those happen side-by-side or in congruence with each other somehow so that we can think about how we can leverage mindfulness, leverage the practice of it to reap the benefits over having a negative reaction or a triggering reaction to it. So I want to make that known that you know, sometimes I've, I've, even in my personal experience, I've had similar things happen where I am surprised by responses or reactions to my offerings because people get very upset. And so I've had to learn in the evolution of my work and what I offer to others that choice is really important. Acknowledging what safety can look like even down to simple things like when I offer a mindful guided practice, I'll say, you're, you're welcome to close your eyes. Or if it feels safer to keep them open, just inviting to find a point of focus for your eyes. Something as simple as that and, and inviting that choice can bring about that sense of safety. And, you know, 
I'm really intrigued by trauma-informed mindfulness just based on my experiences and how I want to be better for others and what I offer. Uh, I've been reading a book by David Trelevin. He talks about trauma-informed mindfulness. The book is called Trauma-Informed Mindfulness. And what he talks about in there is that trauma is less about the event and more about the impact physiologically. So giving another example to that, if I'm offering a breathing practice and mindfulness to a group that I may not have really set up or become aware of the group I'm engaging in. And to be honest, at this point, does it really matter to fully know? Because I think everyone has some level of trauma. So it might be safe to assume that trauma-informed mindfulness is always a best practice. If I offer a breathing practice and I invite stillness in the body and a focus on the breath, and I'm not inviting choice there, I might need as the facilitator to be prepared that that's going to possibly trigger some people that I'm offering this to because stillness or breathing could be connected to an event that happened to someone. And then the physiological effects of that, heartbeat, fast mind, tight body, those things can happen and have the opposite effect. You know, I only want to mention this because it's on my mind because this happened to me and it was not a mindfulness exercise that I was doing with this group. How the intent uh, and how it worked out, you know, in my case, because I was about to show a video that was disturbing. And so I had a on your feet activity with this faculty to try and lead them into a heavy film and the lead in turned out to be what triggered somebody. And so, um, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the, the point about choice because I did make a slight mistake in that. Usually, uh, I do remind everybody before and on your feet activity about, you know, if you need to opt out and I didn't do that because I was more worried about the next activity. And, you know, it reminds me that, as a teacher, you know, we sometimes forget how important every single choice we make is and that everybody around us is not always at the same place that we are. And issues of trauma and loss and, and safety are, are different for everybody. And leads us into something uh, that I wanted to uh, discuss a little bit too, adverse childhood experiences. You know, a lot of times... Every teacher has students who have experienced trauma. You know, we, we know that that just has to be because of ACEs studies and, and things like that. And ACEs is just adverse childhood events. But I was thinking about that uh, recently because Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, who's now the uh, Surgeon General for California, she's one of the pioneers in the ACEs work and starting to use it in uh, medical practice, she was trying to figure out, okay, what do we do to help mitigate adverse events, adverse experiences that people have had, traumatic experiences? And her comment was, I was skeptical at first, but after reading the literature, we instituted mindfulness practices as part of the treatment protocol for toxic stress. 
Now, she's talking about in a clinical situation, but she also, in an article in Edutopia recently, was encouraging mindfulness practices in schools for the same reason. First off, she mentioned that she was skeptical of mindfulness practice. Uh, how do you deal with skeptic skepticism from people about using mindfulness? So I definitely like to acknowledge when it doesn't happen often, or if it does, people are usually quiet about it. <laughs> We're still working around vulnerability as a leadership skill, as a courage skill. And so have to assume based on questions or comments that 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 might be feedback coming from a place of skepticism. And I always invite that we we are always skeptical of things unfamiliar, right? So on the flip of the coin of that, you know, uncertainty brings about opportunity. So I also invite that. So normalizing that it's normal to feel unsure about something that you don't know about, especially something like mindfulness. In my experience, working with teachers, working with adults, sometimes I think there is an assumption about being a certain type of person to be worthy of a practice like mindfulness, that a calm person or a collected person is the worthy person. And I'm here to say that's absolutely not true. We are all worthy of self-love and self-care, emotional awareness, practicing presence. We're all worthy of it. And it's okay that it has to be something that we can learn explicitly. I think the idea of being skeptical is a very normal thing. And the way that I also manage that is that I think we've kind of touched on this already, but it's always an invitation it's always a choice. And I often say, if I'm doing a session, for example, with teachers, I'll say, I'm about to lead a practice. You are always in choice. I will always give options. I recognize that we all are coming from a different place. So I want to offer that autonomy. And if you choose to opt out, my only request is to observe and be a witness to what's happening. So checking into the practice from an observational standpoint, rather than checking out because you're not interested. Checking out might look like looking at your phone while other people are practicing. Checking out might look like I'm going to start thinking about my to-do list. And that is all normal. And just inviting like an awareness of the choices that we make and really taking that opportunity to practice embodiment of integrity, embodiment of being open, which we ask our youth to do a lot as well when we teach them. So... That would be my response to that. So right now there's such an awareness, particularly following the pandemic or as we're still in a pandemic, there's such an awareness of trauma and how that's affecting students and learning. What is it that educators need to know about mindfulness and how that works with students who've experienced trauma? Well, I first want to acknowledge that kids with trauma, when you work with them directly day in and day out, you sometimes as teachers, as educators, get secondhand trauma. And so I want to acknowledge as I answer that question, that when or if there's an interest to explore this more, trauma and mindfulness, as a professional and on a personal level, just to remember to be kind and gentle 
with your exploration, kind and gentle with yourself at the core of everything. When we learn something new, especially if it feels uncomfortable, uncertain, just remembering that it all feels better when we're consistently being kind and gentle with ourselves. So I want to say that. Then a couple of things come to mind. One in particular that I've had experience with recently that just is really important to me. And so I want to offer it up. And you kind of touched on intention, you know, that your intention when working and, and giving that offering to teachers was coming from a beautiful place. And so the invitation is just to think about intent versus impact. So our intention can come from a good place. Our intention could be wholehearted and kind. And the impact might not be in connection with our intention. And so just thinking metacognitively ahead of time before inviting something that you're really not sure the outcome, what the outcome will be, maybe exploring and visualizing and reflecting upon intent versus impact. And can you see outcomes that might arise and how you can prepare for those stuck points? The second thing that I want to offer up is being able to gently and safely and kindly learn how to recognize trauma and to be able to respond to it. So what mindfulness practices can do for us on a personal level is it helps build our resilience, our recognition that when something challenging comes and faces in front of us, we don't always have to be reactionary. We can learn how to be responsive over reactionary. And when we do that, we're more flexible. We're able to pivot more constructively and effectively and safely. And so recognizing trauma and being responsive to it comes with experience, comes with time, not just learning about it through a book or a podcast or a class. And so again, that fundamental layer of being kind to yourself and recognizing that there are no mistakes, there's just lessons. And the last thing that I want to really touch on as, a, as an actionable thing that I feel really strongly about, especially working with youth, is creating opportunities for them to know that they are empowered to communicate what's going on for them on the inside. I think that comes with trust and time, but empowering feedback really helps us as teachers, as lead learners, alongside our youth that we teach, without their empowered feedback, it's very challenging for us to know what does and does not work for the people in front of us. And that changes every year, right? You know, so again, flexibility is huge. But empowering feedback or empowered feedback is so important. But that only comes if we create that culture of, hey, of choice, of, hey, I I want to hear you talk to me. Having restorative circles or just even circle time for share built around social emotional concepts or topics or just like a let's do an emotional check-in. Here are some emotion words. Pick one and then talk about it or you can pass. Again, that choice. So I think I just want to add in that empowered feedback is really important and only happens if we invite it regularly, consistently, and explicitly. You mentioned uh, restorative practice, and uh, which has also been uh, been a big topic recently. And one of the things that I coach teachers on 
is that you need to have some level of training before you just start, you know, just because you do circles in your classroom does not necessarily mean you're doing restorative practice, that you do need some training before you start implementing restorative interventions uh, in, the, in a classroom or in a school. And I would assume that using mindfulness techniques would be the same. Am I correct that you should have some level, some training before you implement uh, mindfulness within your classroom and or school? Is that correct? Yes. And I think that, you know, we can look at this from a generalized standpoint to, again, not making mindfulness seem so ethereal and different from any other things that you offer people that you lead or teach in that training is always important. And so, yes, I do feel like it's important to even embody mindfulness when you don't maybe know a lot about it. And the way to do that is to slow down and take stock and have a stronger understanding, a stronger practice of yourself. Because, you know, one of the things that I think maybe does make mindfulness as a skill to be learned or a way of life to be learned or a practice to be learned or all three that it starts with you. So I can, I can learn how to teach a certain program in academics and then I can turn around and give it back without embodying all the things that I need to teach because fundamentally it's already there. Something that we don't have a lot of experience with is, is a skill set for how to be with our emotions, a skill set of how to be present, training the mind to do those things. And it starts with you. And when you, the lead learner, embodies the skills that mindfulness can offer, it is more organically and authentically received by those that you offer it to. And so a couple of places that I really like, you know, and enjoy and have experienced myself, one being a book, Mindfulness for Teachers by Patricia Jennings. I find that still to be relevant to this day. She was published a while back and it's still relevant to this day. And then Mindful Schools is a program, an organization that offers courses and not just courses on fundamentals of mindfulness or teaching mindfulness in classrooms. It offers communication courses, mindful communication courses, offers self-compassion course. So lots of layers and choice in how you want to engage and, and be with mindfulness as a self-practice to then share with others. Starts with you. All, all those offerings start with you getting more professional development as you go along and learning how and building your own professional toolbox before just trying and implement something. Once again, thank you so much, Jennifer. I've enjoyed our time uh, speaking together. Of course. And I want to say one more thing to you teachers that are listening out there or anyone who's listening. You don't have to just be a, a teacher. Anyone who works with children, I think that you know, I tell everyone I work with that, and particularly teachers in this context, that you are, in my opinion, the most important person in the room. I love and believe that youth are our future, and I enjoy teaching them, and they are important, and I think that you as their leaders are more important. And so, you know, offering all of this to people out there because you deserve to be well, you are enough as you are, and then 
elevating that is just all the more beautiful and consistently being kind to ourselves about all of it. So just want to offer that little wrap up for you. The Thoughtful Teacher Podcast is brought to you as a service of OnCourse Education Solutions. If you would like to learn more about how we help schools and youth organizations implement high-quality, holistic, and equitable interventions, please visit our website at www.oncoursesolutions.net. We also encourage you to join us in supporting K. Blotter Recycling. Find out more about their work empowering the people of Haiti at www.kblotta.com. This has been Episode 3 of the 2021 Fall Season. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and colleagues about it, either in person or using social media. We also greatly appreciate positive reviews on the podcast app you use. The Thoughtful Teacher Podcast is hosted and produced by R. Scott Lee, who retains copyright. We encourage diverse opinions. However, opinions expressed do not necessarily reflect the views of producer, partners, or underwriters. Guests are never compensated for appearance, nor do guests pay to appear. Transcripts are available following podcast publication at our website, thoughtfulteacherpodcast.com. Sponsorship opportunities or other inquiries may be made at the Contact Us page at our website, thoughtfulteacherpodcast.com. Please follow the Thoughtful Teacher Podcast on Twitter at Dr. R. Scott Lee and on Facebook at facebook.com Thoughtful Teacher Podcast. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.